Today's reading comes from Genesis 2, chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all of the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is God's word. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for worship team. I don't know if you guys realize, every time Mike picks out songs for Sunday, he calls who's ever preaching and he asks them their uh, topic, and he tries to pick songs accordingly. So thank you, Michael. I appreciate you spending the time. It's great worship. Good morning. My name is Matthew Rojek. My wife and I, Betty, have been here about eight and a half years. Uh, I'm grateful to Pastor Leon to give me the opportunity to preach. I mean, it's a humbling and fearful thing to be able to do so before you, so I bring the word to God to you. Hopefully with those things in humility and in reverence for his word. So we're going to be talking about work today. And on one hand, I say, man, it's terribly complicated. And on the other hand, I'm going to tell you, I think it's terribly simple. Uh, I've been given some great books by Pastor, uh, and I wanted to list them for you guys just so that you guys have opportunity to also know that many times I quote them here. Sometimes I might not have quotation marks around, and I'm, I'm sorry. I'm somewhat disorganized at times, and I don't remember that I've taken them out of a book, so please forgive me for that. But many of the ideas that we're going to talk about today revolve around these three books and the ideas that they purport. Uh, one book is called Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. Another is called Work Matters by Nelson uh, and God at Work by Vyth. So real quickly, uh, December of 1980, I graduated from Wayne State with a Bachelor of Fine Arts in metalsmithing, jewelry, and sculpture. Three months later, uh, Betty and I got married, 1981, March, and I didn't have a job. So I had, to, I had to start a business, and I started a little nut and bolt business, sales. Absolutely miserable. I hated it. I despised it. Betty would come home, find me sleeping on the couch at 2 o'clock in the afternoon because I was so fearful to go cold calling. So I figured I had to get a job, so I went back to what I'd done for a number of years, working at a factory for my stepfamily miserable, dirty job, and I would say every day, every three days, my stepbrother would curse me out violently with everything that you could possibly imagine in front of my co-workers and in front of all the secretaries in the office. It was brutal. I hated it. So after a couple of years of that, man, I didn't have a clue of what to do, and Betty kept saying, You've got a fine arts degree. You love art. You love music. You love color. You've got to use your degree. And I would argue, what am I supposed to do? I'm an okay jeweler. I'm not a good sculptor. How in the world am I going to support a family on that? So we joined the Navy. Took the officer can <laughs> took the officer candidate's test, passed the test with hopes of becoming an officer for a variety of reasons that didn't happen. Hated the Navy miserable. It's, it's very difficult to justify military in times of peace. So I painted the same hallway every month for two years. 
So finally, I had bad knees. Uh, the, or the Navy gave me a military dis, or a, a medical discharge, honor, honorary medical discharge. Betty and I came back to Plymouth, where we had still kept our home, and I began working at a lumber yard at minimum wage with a child. And I actually loved it. I was what they call a lumber rat. I would carry two-by-fours and sheets of plywoods to people's cars, and I loved it. I loved the feel of wood. I loved the smell of wood. I loved the idea because I was working with construction guys that they were going to build. And, man, I really liked it. But it was minimum wage with a wife, a child, a mortgage payment. I had to move on. So a friend got me a job at an electrical engineering firm. Remember, I got a fine arts degree. I'm not an engineer. I hate engineering. Sorry, Roy. <laughs> it's not my thing. It was a good job. There was good pay, great benefits. I loved the people, but I hated my job. And all along, Betty's got this mantra, God wants you to be using your fine arts degree. You love art. You've got to be using it. And I, I would say we had arguments, but it wasn't. I argued with Betty constantly. So during this time, a buddy of mine was a car wholesaler. He would go to the auction, buy a car, and he'd call me up. He'd say, hey, I'll sell you this car for three grand. I'll make three or four or five hundred bucks. I'll leave some money in it for you. So I'd buy the car. I'd bring it home. I'd wash it. First car I bought, I made a thousand bucks over a weekend. I washed it. I sold it. Made a thousand bucks. So I'm like, cool. We got extra income. We got a second vehicle. And Betty's going. And now she's had an epiphany, and I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. She had an epiphany. The Lord does not want you doing this. And I would argue, argue, argue. So after about a year, I'm going to church one night. Now, this is great. Going to church, and I tell her to shut up because she brought this thing up again. I get to church, first words out of the pastor's mouth, literally, were the words that Betty would use when she was trying to encourage me about using my fine arts degree. You know, and he says, you know how you're doing something that everything's cool and you're making money? But God's will is not there. He has something different for you. I come home, I yell at her again. You called the pastor and told him what our conversations are. She said, no, 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 I didn't. So I got two points here. One is, I've been where maybe many of you are. We worked, I worked for minimum wage with a wife and a child and a mortgage payment. And I worked at jobs that were despairing, where literally I was cursed at violently in front of my co-workers. It was 10 years before I started my own business. And what ended up happening was, as I was buying these cars, one of them was just a plain Jane Bronco II, kind of like a Jeep SUV. I got introduced to a guy, and he said, hey, I can put some cool graphics on it, and I can put some chrome around the wheels. And like before my eyes, he transformed this vehicle I had. And literally, I saw my head on his body. I'm all, that's what I want to do. So I came home. I waited a month or two while I prayed. Finally, I told Betty. I said, hey, found what I want to do. I told her, and she said, well, that's art on cars, and you love both. Let's do it. Now we've got a second child. I'm all... Don't you remember the first thing when I was selling nuts and bolts? That didn't turn out so well. And she said, but you're going to be using your gifts. And she went on and named a number of things that God had created in me that she, point, she said will point to success. Our first month, 
we made $45. Fortunately, it got better after that. So my point is, I've lived minimum wage. I've lived despairing for 10 years trying to figure out a career. And the second thing, and this is the most important thing, if this is the only thing you hear today. I thought I got it out the first time. (laughs) Every one of you guys is created uniquely with gifts and talents and dreams and hopes that you are unique. And if you're in a job that you don't like, there are ways out of it. I promise you. God has made you specifically for something. And you are unlike anyone else. And I want you to hear that. So Jonathan, would you go ahead and play this clip? True story. There's going to be a chess master teaching a young American prodigy. Made his four moves from the position in front of you. Don't move until you figure it out in your head. Don't look to me for a hand. I can't do it without moving the pieces. Yes, you can. Clear the lines of men in your head, one at a time, and the king will be left standing alone, like a guy on a street corner. Here, I'll make it easier for you. I don't know if you guys heard, but the teacher said, mate in four moves. And he's wanting the boy to not move the pieces. The guy's kid's name Josh Waitskin. You can look him up. He wanted him to be able to do it in his mind. And what did he do? He cleared the table so that Josh only had one thing to think about. And in some measure, I want to encourage you, to kind of clear your mind if you're in the middle of like a frustrating time in your career. Let's wipe the slate clean, and we're only going to do one thing today. We're going to answer three questions. Is work a gift, or is it a curse? And the second question is, is there work that is inherently Christian or spiritual? And the third question is, what does God deem success regarding your vocation? And I would include life because we're going to talk about this a little bit. So whether you're a student or retired or a stay-at-home mom, stay-at-home dad, or whether both of you work, God has something specific for you in your vocation. If your vocation is to be staying at home for whatever reason, look at Urban Brashan. Her vocation kind of just changed, didn't it? Students, you might think you don't have a vocation. You do. 
Chris and Roy are retired, but guess what? They still have a vocation, and frankly, that vocation is in some measure to the church because of their experience, because of their wisdom. You guys ever hang out with them? You bring something up, first thing Chris says, oh, well, let's pray about it. Immediately. I've gone to Roy. Hey, Roy, I need some help. I need some wisdom. And he's given me of his experience. They might be retired, but they're not retired. You might be a student. You might be single. Wherever you're at in life, you still have a calling. In Robert Bailey's book called Habits of the Heart, he describes the disintegration of our culture because of what he calls individual expressional, I'm sorry, expressive individualism. He argues that America has elevated individual choice and its expressions to such a level that community has suffered dramatically. Here's a quote, and I put in the word sarcasm. I'm presuming that's what he's doing. The sacredness of the individual is not balanced by any sense of the whole or concern for the common good. The sacredness of the individual is not balanced by any sense of the whole or the concern for the common good. In today's society, selfishness abounds. Selfishness abounds, and you know that. Tim Keller offers hope for our societal ills, but by suggesting that we reestablish and take control of the word vocation in our lives. And vocation comes from the Latin word, I think it's pronounced vocare, which means calling. It doesn't mean work. It means calling. And Keller goes on to say that if we reestablish that as a calling and done properly as unto the Creator, this newfound ideal of work will not only develop us as community-minded individuals, but it's going to show the world an otherworldliness that we as Christians exist in, that of glorifying God. Let's answer the question, is work a curse or not? Genesis 2, 1 through 3, that Carolyn read. How many times do you see the word work there? And who did it? Right off the bat, God worked, creating, growing, planning, and providing for His new creation. It's in His very nature to do so. Look back at Genesis 1, 1. Every day, God worked doing those things. And I would say that not only did he work then, but he works today. What is it that we're asking when we pray to God? Hey, come work on my behalf. I need intervention. I need a job. We need food. We need our mortgage payment. We need healing. We need provision. We need counsel. We need protection. God, would you come work on my behalf? Now, he does so miraculously. You look in the Old Testament, you look in the New Testament. 
The widow's jar was full of oil, and it never ran out. Manna, knock on a rock and get water. You're walking down the street. Six months ago, you prayed for wisdom, and you're walking or you're driving, and all of a sudden, Scripture comes to mind. Wow, that applies to the counsel I ask, Lord. So we know, and I don't want to take anything away from God's miraculous intervention in our lives. But typically, it's through farmers, truck drivers, grocers, nutritionists, nurses, doctors, pharmacists, lawyers, plumbers, pastors, church members, that we see God working in our lives for benefit as all those people that I just listed, as you and I work, we are mutually benefited, especially as we do so in honor of God, not only as we praise Him, but our works will praise Him. Our thanksgiving to Him that you've created me as an artist so I can appreciate color and texture and style and form and Miles Davis. And I can honor the Lord in that. In Psalm 145, the author lists some ways, and one of the things that he says, all thy works shall praise thee. And then he lists several things that God says he's going to do. He's going to feed. He's going to lift up. That he's near. He provides and he protects. Martin Luther, the scholar, while discussing this psalm, comes up with two things that, man, are going to rock your world if you can grasp these. He says that as we work, we are God's fingers to his people. We are the tangible efforts of God working. When Ken's slinging a hammer and putting down tile. He's God's fingers to the person who owns that household. And as, God, as Ken does that, to God's glory and honor, people are going to say, whoa, dude, like you got a cool attitude. What is it? The other, things that he, the other thing that Martin Luther says is that we are his masks while he remains hidden. Isn't that like a cool picture? We, as we work, God is hiding behind the scenes as we comfort, as we love, as we console, as we encourage. Whatever the thing is that we do, as we do it unto God, He's hiding in the background. Now, I don't know if Luther goes on to discuss this, but like the better part to me in this is that as were His masks... And then God says, guess what? I'm going to reveal myself. The mask steps away. person doesn't see Matthew or Ken. And they're all, wow, how could you forgive me when I wronged you? How could you care for me when there's no benefit to you? How can you pick me up and drive me to church when I've been so disrespectful and rude to you? God reveals himself to people through us as our endeavors of masks and fingers. And they're revealed and people find Christ.
You know, I go to a couple of restaurants. One's Einstein's Bagels. I go before work sometimes. I get a bagel. And as I was preparing the sermon, I walk in. Managers behind the cash register. Hi, can I help you? Uh, Yeah, how you doing? I'm doing well. What can I get for you? And like, no eye contact, no friendship. I mean, no... He wants to get me through the line because there's other people behind me. And so you go down the next corner, you pay down there, and then they'll get your food. And then I go to five guys. And this has happened a number of times. There's a dude behind the counter who calls your number and gives you your bag of fries and burgers. And I'm there, this is a year and a half ago, and the dude, I don't, I don't remember exactly what it was, but he went like, 132! <laughs> and so I'm all, cool. I'm all, it's for Matthew! And I, and I walk up front and I get my bag. And then a month ago, I'm there, same dude, he's pushing out a big 400 pounds of potatoes on a cart, and my daughter, who's not paying attention, is talking to me, and she's like backing up to go get the thing, and the guy almost runs her over, and he looks at me like, man, what the heck is she doing? She walked right in front of me. I got 400 pounds. And so he and I had kind of like a little, you know, eyeball dialogue thing. And then after Martha goes, like he was coming, I'm all, hey, bro, you want some help with those taters? And he's all, yeah, if your old man can lift that stuff or something. I mean, and it's just, I don't know if he's a believer, and I don't want to say I don't care, but guess what? He's glorifying God because in the middle of a menial task, every time I see him, I walk in smiling, I get to see this dude. That's what you and I are supposed to be doing. So it can be startling to us when we recognize that work was in the Garden of Eden because of the distaste that you and I can have for our jobs now. Work is not, as some perceive it, a necessary evil, money to be made during the week so we can do what we want to do on the weekend, the chore before the party. If God worked and were created in His image, should we not also work? Genesis 2.15, God's instruction there, He literally says, work it. And He's talking about working the garden, man's new home. Earlier, His charge to men and women were to be fruitful, to multiply, and subdue the earth. It appears here that God is envisioning... Okay, remember, God created all this stuff, all these natural resources. And then he tells man and women to go do all these things. It appears to me that he's envisioning envisioning cities, cultures, communities. And how are they to do these things? But God commands them through work. Populate, grow, establish, rule over, govern, build, design and create. So this is a quote, and I'm sorry, I don't remember which book it's from, but it says, so we can see work was before the curse and it's to be food for our soul and not medicine because of the curse. You guys see the difference between that? It's food for our soul. It's enriching. It's pleasurable. It's not because of this sickness of the curse of work that we need some medicine to relieve us. Now we're going to talk about a couple things, knowledge-based work and service-based work. Many of the ancient philosophers, and I would say people to this day have bought into this, that there are two kinds of work. Knowledge-based work, which is going to be more of like an intellectual work, 
lawyers, doctors, MBAs, PhDs, people with degrees, who do things that look and appear to be very valuable and impressive. Therefore, the people who do them are valuable and impressive. On the other hand, are service works, which you and I would call blue-collar jobs. And you and I, in some measure, would look with a little bit of disdain, and that's probably too strong of a word, but we're going to look down at that. We're going to see a lawyer and a janitor. Who are you going to pick to be on your financial team? Yeah, the lawyer do it every time, right? We're judging wrongly there. And then, okay, so you've got that idea. And then if you throw into that medieval clergymen who said that the only work there is that God is pleased with is that work which is done within the, inside the church and that everything else is secular and God doesn't give a rip about that. And that's a lie. So you take these two ideas, service and knowledge-based work, and then Christian and secular, and we've got a spiritual and intellectual struggle here. And I would dare say that those things are almost a caste, not even almost, they are a caste system. Sarah, did you ask? No. Nice and loud. Next sermon. Is that okay? I mean, seriously, that's what we're going to talk about next sermon. Again, I just wanted, I wanted to clear the table. I wanted to give you guys an idea of God's view of this thing. Great question. I'll make sure that we hit it there. So does anybody here not know what a caste system is? Please raise your hand. Okay. So, uh, J.D., do we got that slide? So I'm very limited in my knowledge of this, but in India... There's this thing called the caste system. Now, they would say it's no longer in place. I don't agree with them. And basically, from here on up, determines as you're born into a family, that family belongs to one of these classes. It is inescapable. It's inescapable. If you're born into one of these classes, the only way that you can escape it is by dying after having done a well job at whatever you're doing, and be reincarnated. And if you've done good enough, you'll move up a class. But there's even a class that's not even in the triangle called untouchables. And these are people who live a miserable life because of the lot that's been laid on them. And they have little to no hope, again, other than reincarnation, which obviously as believers we don't believe. But I wanted to give you an idea because I'm telling you that I think we have a bit of an intellectual caste system and a spiritual caste system. If you and I think there's a difference between knowledge-based work and service-based work and the people that are employed in those things that you and I judge. Look at James 2. James is talking to his congregate members and says, hey, Guy walks in, he's styling, he's got a tie, he's got a suit, 
He's got nice rings. And you say, hey, bud, we got coffee. We got cakes upstairs. You know, can I walk you to the front row? Would you like a little bit of a pillow? I see your back's hurting a little bit. We got little cushions that we can give you. And then the guy that you and I all know who comes here every Sunday looking for money and is dirty, probably smells, and is a nuisance to you and I. Unless we love Christ. And what do we say? Hey, bud, place is kind of full. You want to listen while you're up in Fellowship Hall? Or would you mind standing in the back? And what does James say? You have judged wrongly. Solely based on what your eyes see. And how often does Christ condemn that? As image bearers, that in and of itself. Now couple that. We're image bearers. Couple that with we're redeemed image bearers. How much more should that embed value and worth sufficiently sufficiently into our self-esteem, regardless of the vocational role we play on earth? But guess what? That takes you and I renewing our mind. Because the world's standards are directly contradictory to God's standards. Remember we just talked about in James. We're going to look at a couple of other things. Look what Jesus does. He calls John the Baptist the greatest man ever to live who was born of a woman. You and I would look at him and say, that dude's nuts. He eats locusts. He walks around in skins saying things that we've never heard of before. i got to imagine he looked pretty nasty and stunk. You don't think that the Pharisees of that day looked down on him? And then we got, on the other hand, Paul. Dude's got every degree imaginable, knows everybody. Man, he's the popular Pharisee. And what does he say about himself? Man, I count all those accolades. My Ph.D., I count it as dung compared to knowing Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a theologian, was talking to a group of uh, doctors, and he said, let this not be said of you, that on your tombstone it was said, born John Smith, I'm sorry, John Smith, Born a man, died a doctor. Now what's his point? His point is, and I'm going to make another similar point, so so follow me, the exact same screwed up mentality that Martin Lloyd-Jones points out there can be pointed out in the other way. John Smith, born a man, died a janitor. What's the problem with this? The problem is our identity, who we are, has been wrapped up in our vocation. Whether it's a lawyer, a dentist, a doctor, a janitor, a postal worker, a coffee server, a maid. Man, that's just wrong. Vocational titles, financial and intellectual wealth, salary or social status, 
can affect the mental picture of who we are defined as rather than God's definition of us as children of God and joint heirs of Jesus Christ himself. Do you guys get that? that that's incredible. I believe that there's a great current danger that confronts humankind, whether those in the intellectual fields or the service fields, when we become defined by our work. i got to tell you again, it takes renewing your mind. It takes you and I as the body of Christ to love the dude as he walks in the door that's here for the 50th time looking for money in a handout or whatever scenario you want to put on that because it can be the other way as well. High intellectual people that you and I look up to in an idolatrous fashion. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this story before. A reporter walks up to three guys on a job site and says, hey, what are you guys doing? The one guy says, I'm, I'm cutting bricks. And says the next guy, hey, what are you doing? The guy says, I'm building a wall. And he says, the third guy, what are, you, what, what are you doing? The guy says, I'm building a cathedral for the glory of God. And what is that? Perspective. It's perspective. The dude knew who he was. He'd tell you, yeah, I'm a bricklayer. Big deal. But guess what I'm doing? I'm honoring and glorifying God in the talents that he's given me and has, as, as he's created me to be. Lastly, let's talk about on what basis does God deem success. And again, I want to say somewhat in life as well as vocation, because some of you guys might be in transition, again, whether it's retired or students or whatever. Throughout Scripture, Jesus takes little to no thought of spiritual or social status when it comes to his interaction with them concerning salvation. Think of the people that he hung with. Oftentimes, those in the surrounding communities would have considered these people either socially inept or unholy. What does Jesus, what's Jesus looking for? He inspects and approves or disapproves whether men and women are faithful and express faith. Faith is expressed and understood in a variety of ways, but they all have a couple of common elements that I see in the stories of Scripture. One is humility, and the other is an overwhelming sense of an omnipotent God who cares for his children in mercy with compassion. Matthew 8, centurion, comes to Jesus and says, Hey man, got a servant who's sick, would you, would you heal him? Jesus says, Sure, let's, let's start walking. Centurion says, No, 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 no. He says, Man, I get it, I know you're omnipotent. All you got to do is say the word. And what's the other thing? He goes back to humility. Hey, I'm not even worthy. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. And what does Jesus say about that guy? Do you guys remember? Not found such faith in all the house of Israel. Pardon me? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're getting great. We're getting to that. Mark 10. The blind beggar knew God's power and in faith would not take no for an answer. Hey, shut up. Disciples are telling him to shut up. Man, he wouldn't. How can you do that? Because you know he's a merciful God and he's an omnipotent God who's got power and grace to heal you. Exact same thing, the woman with the issue of blood. First of all, I'm not 100% sure about this, but... 
If I'm her, I think I'd be a little embarrassed to be out in public. And what does she say? If I touch the hem of his garment. What kind of faith is that? No, I need to be anointed with oil in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. I need the cloak put over the top of me. I need to go to the church. Man, if I touch the hem of his garment. And to Ken's point, what does Jesus say to both of these guys? Go, your faith has made you well. Now we know that we receive faith as a gift from God. But guess what? We don't use it. Shame on you. You have to exercise it. How big is your God? Do you believe Him for this stuff? Are you willing to put yourself at risk and look like a fool because you have to do that in many circumstances in order to exercise your faith? Now regarding the opposite, unbelief. Matthew 10 says um, that Jesus was unable to cast out demons. I'm sorry, His disciples were unable to cast out demons. Why? Because of unbelief. Matthew 3, Jesus scolds the Pharisees and says, don't give me this jazz that Abraham's your father. He's not going to save you. God can raise up stones to be his children and praise him. And then he says, guess what? The axe is coming and it's laid at the root of Israel. You guys aren't paying attention. The Gentile bunch is going to get your blessing. And then in Mark 6, it says Jesus could only do a few small miracles and that he marveled at their unbelief. So, Jesus is looking, do you exercise faith in your vocation? Do you have eternity in mind? Do you recognize that even if you're doing a menial or service task, you can build that cathedral? You can honor Him. You can bless Him. And more importantly, you can bless those around you so that when God chooses to reveal, the, pull away the mask, they see Christ. Colossians 3.23, here's my other component about what God deems as success. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. God's expectations of us is that we work well. Not as men pleasers who only hustle when someone's looking, but if we recognize Him as a great rewarder, then our labors, however seemingly trivial, will honor Him, and for that we'll be rewarded well. You know, in, uh, in both the book and in listening to Tim Keller, he keeps using this one uh, example of what it means to be successful. He says, if you're a pilot, you know what a Christian, what, how a Christian performs christian being a pilot? He lands the plane. And he lands the plane well. What do you do? Do you do it well? Do you do it as unto the Lord? Trusting in His eternal reward? That's at the end of 323. It's at 324. Look up 324 of the Colossians as well. You know, when I was thinking about preaching, I've gone into the commons a couple of times, and I don't know if you guys have ever seen Grace, but I walk in and she's all, Hi! And man, she's just like lit. And again, you know, the guy at Five Guys. 
Do people, would people say that about you at work? Now, if that's not your personality, let's, let's disassociate these things. But when you're at work, will people say, man, that dude's an honorable guy. He's dignified. He knows who he is. He knows who he serves. And are they going to see that character in you that when God pulls the mask away, they're going to say, man, I don't want to be that dude. Or I'm sorry, I don't want to serve his God if he's that much of a jerk. So, as I close, I want to revisit the term I used initially of expressive individualism. As sinful creatures, you and I are bent on idolatry and self-marketing. And we must set aside our pettinesses, arrogance, all these things that hinder us from recognizing what God himself says about the matter of our servitude to him and to others so that they might benefit, as well as ourselves letting obedience and faith have its perfect outcome in us, which is sanctification. Now, to Sarah's point, again, I just wanted to lay a foundation so that we can all start afresh. So the next sermon is going to be completely different. We're going to talk about some of these things. But in closing, I wanted to, I wanted to read two different quotes. You guys have heard me a number of times talk about this guy, Brother Lawrence. He was a monk in the 1600s, uh, had a miraculous epiphany about getting saved. And he goes to this monastery, and in his own words, he says he's a clumsy oaf. And basically, when he knocked on the door and they let him in, they said, yeah, you are you can't be a monk, but what you can do is we'll let you be a cook. And they found his diary years later and published part of his diary as well as some conversations he had with a bishop. And there's two quotes that I want to tell you. So again, he had a strong aversion to cooking. He hated cooking, but he's talking about here. And this is Brother Lawrence's words. When I began my work, I said to God with filial trust, My God, since you are with me and since I must apply myself to these duties by your order... I beg you to give me the grace to remain with you and keep you company. Even better, my Lord, work with me, accept my efforts, and take possession of all my affections. Thus, during my work, I continued to speak intimately with him, offering him my services and asking him for his graces. Now listen to this next one. This next one will revolutionize your life. The times of activity are not at all different from the hours of prayer. For I possess God as peaceably, as peacefully in the commotion of my kitchen, where often people are asking me for different things at the same time, as I do when kneeling in front of the blessed sacrament. You guys hear what he's saying? He equates taking the sacrament of communion with cooking an egg or scrubbing a pan. Now, my guess is some of your brains are boiling right now and you're saying, yeah, Matt, you don't know my job. You don't know the pressures of my job. You don't know the stress that I'm under. You don't know. You don't know. I can't. You don't know. And I'm going to tell you, if you don't spend the time either in the morning or at night honoring the Lord with your time, reading the Scriptures, renewing your mind, spending time in meditation of who he really is and who you really aren't, 
yeah, you're not going to come to this conclusion that Brother Lawrence did. And in the middle of your day, you're going to forget God and you're going to be on working, and then all of a sudden you're going to get home and you're all, wow, what happened? Like, what did I do? I, I wasn't thinking about the Lord. So don't, don't tell me that I don't understand. This guy had a busy life, just like you do. But he took the time, whenever that is, to know who God is, to worship Him, to honor Him, to sit before Him in meditation, thinking only of Him, quieting your mind, listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, so that when you're out there and the world is slapping you across the face to and fro and demanding of you, you can still be at peace. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, you are our all in all. Apart from you, life is worthless. Lord, we know that as you've created every different grain of sand and every star, the planets, the universe, You've created us as individuals to bring you honor and glory. Lord, I would pray and I would ask that the congregation understand that their work is the exact same thing as the songs we sang at the very beginning of service. It's worship to you. Lord, we need you desperately to renew our mind. Help us fight against the contradictions that the world tells us are valuable and impressive and worthy that we might hear your calling to come away, my beloved, and commune with me. In Jesus' name, amen.